0: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 11 to 13. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 11 to 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and you can open it to page 900. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, and once again, I am happy that we get to go over that 10-week catechism. After we did that class, a lot of the people that took the class had asked me, is there some way we could teach it to the rest of the church, and so it just so happens that we finished a shorter catechism and that we can do this 10-week class together. Uh, So I'm looking forward to the next nine weeks when the other elders also teach it and lead us into this teaching. And uh, until then, I think you can compile a list and just see how it's verified in Scripture and how we can be sure of our salvation when we have these evidences displayed in our lives. Uh, Before we start today's sermon, let's start with a prayer. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, there are some major biblical concepts that will go into depth this morning, and this all sort of culminates from the previous verses that we have studied the last few weeks. We've, go, we've, we've gone back into um, sin and idolatry, lusting after the former things that took, away, took us away from the holy path, that God was leading his people through. And we saw that in the Israelites. The Corinthian church, likewise, was struggling with understanding what true freedom is. And we've seen that they, too, used their freedoms to abuse and trample on those that were weaker, lusting after the things in this world. Paul writes to the church in Corinth to teach them what freedom is and what the abuse of it looks like. If you are free, finally free from the systems of the world, why are you then subjecting yourself into them again? We have also, by the grace of God, been able to see and recognize that we too, like the church in Corinth, struggle with the same things in this day and age. The philosophies and ideologies of this world continually fall short. And yet we see a sort of doubling down on these bankrupt ideals from the media and other systems of influence. Because how can you say that there is systemic evil or racism or or whatever and then celebrate when that system just continues? How can you preach that the system is corrupt and think the answer to that is just more system? In the end, people are realizing it's simply a power play and those in power will fight to maintain it. They'll say things like, the system is terrible, but I can fix it. I can be your Messiah. And the people rally around this figure. It's no different than when the people shouted, Here is your Elohim. It's also fragile. And I'm talking about this kind of ideology. The things that will supposedly save our system now are things that go directly against God's will, His will for marriage his will for family, his will for government to protect, his will for justice, and his will for the sanctity of life. These are things that the word of God teaches his people to adhere to and to obey. And this isn't so that we become repressed. As we follow God in obedience, we understand more fully the true joy And life that is truly to the full. We have had a new president uh, inaugurated, installed last week. And our job, like every other president before, is to pray for this man, for the president, for the leaders of our nation, our community, and pray that they will turn to God and adhere to his laws because his laws are just, they are good. I remember most recently, uh, they celebrated on their Twitter accounts, both uh, the president and the Madam Vice President had put something celebrating the Roe v. Wade uh, decision on January 22nd. Uh, January 22nd, Many churches for the last many decades have taken it as anti-abortion day, and they would preach a sermon on the sanctity of life in their churches. And then I saw in their Twitter feeds as they celebrated all these mixed kind of comments. People were disappointed. People were happy. People were celebrating. You know, it's a woman's right to choose or a woman's right for health care. My body, my choice, and other people would comment, still a life, you know inside is a different life, and then there would be another comment saying, it's not a life, it's a parasite. And There are these very extreme kind of comments going on, all within those comments that our leaders had posted. But for me, the most effective ones that I have personally read are the people that just simply said, I am praying for you, Mr. President. I am praying for you, Madam Vice President, that you will turn to God and know that His ways are good. And so this is what we also ought to do as a church, not just rage and rant on our social medias, but to sincerely go down in prayer, asking God to change the hearts of our leaders. And this isn't so just for us to look outside, but this is also, as we have seen, to look inside. What is the church's purpose? What's the purpose of church in this world? And when we lose sight of this purpose, that's when we start to lose our focus. That's when we start to give into idolatry. That's when we start adopting world systems. That's when we start to break away from the teachings and the laws of God and to say, you know what? It's okay. What's the big deal? Let them do as they please Freedom of blank, right? But the church can never lose sight of its purpose. That's to be a witness for Christ. And as we've seen, one way we can lose it that we've been going over is one of two things. By taking advantage of our freedom to stumble those that we mean to convert. We purposefully offend. It's like, I'm free to do whatever I want. It's my life. I get to do whatever I want, not even thinking about those that are weaker, that are just infants in Christ, and trampling on their faith. And number two, one way we can lose our witness by taking advantage of our freedom is to disqualify ourselves. The example we were given were from the Israelites. They were free. They had freedom. But they took advantage of it by worshiping idols, by giving into sexual immorality. They were saying, your ways, God, are, it's just too constricting. We should have freedom to have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want. And they tested God with their griping and complaining, their grumbling. But Paul says this, all these things happened. They were made an example of for our benefit. In verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. They were written down. These things that we think when we read it as a child, Ah, they're so different you know they're so ancient they're so far away but when we look at what they did how is it any different than what is happening in 2021 when we get to do whatever we want and we think that is happiness how is that different from any of the idolatry that was going on in the ancient world the point is it doesn't it isn't and they were written down for our instruction The word instruction is another word for admonition. And admonition is a warning. It's to counsel someone to change their behavior. It's to counsel someone toward a change in their behavior. So what happened to Israel is for us to be warned by, and its instruction for us is to be benefited. It's to benefit us so that we're able to follow God's will and so that we don't forfeit our reward. There is a reward, and we should not forfeit it. Now, these things were written down not only for the church specifically in Corinth, but all of God's people. Paul refers to receiving this instruction. Uh, The people that are receiving it are on whom the end of the ages has come. What does that mean? End of the ages means that we are now in the final stages of this era. These are the last days. End is from the word telos, and ages is from the word aeon, which we get, you know, era or age or even world system. That's aeon. Right now is the telos of the world system. Why is it important for the... Corinthians to know this. Why is it important for Christians to understand this? Well, if you know the word telos, then you know the trajectory. Telos is the complete finish. As with Jesus on his instruction to his disciples on the last day, Paul also reminds his readers that we are indeed in the last days. This is important because this helps us to understand everything that's going on right now. Knowing the finish helps us understand our purpose, and I'll get into that in just a bit. So if I threw a ball, and you catch it. Let's say I have this ball. It's an imaginary ball right now, and I threw it. I threw it at Joe, and Joe caught it. There you go. Good catch. Uh, That's why you're in the football team. But good catch, and it it could be said that the telos of the ball's journey was you. The final stages of its flight was Joe, Joe to catch it, right? And so when you freeze frame the finish, let's say you freeze frame this toss and Joe catching it, when you freeze frame the finish, you can track back the trajectory of the ball as well. You can see then who threw it, what path the ball took, and so forth and so on. This is where we get teleology, That's the study of purpose and meaning. Teleology is from the word telos. Telos is the end. Teleology is the study of purpose and meaning. If there is an end, there is a purpose. There is no scientist that can deny that this universe has an end. Some modern people, however, seem to have trouble with this. Some want to believe that there is no purpose, no meaning. When you die, nothing. But any meaningful study would hopefully get you to see that that is impossible. A ball lands somewhere. That means it must have come from somewhere. To say that the ball came from nowhere would be illogical and would not be scientifically consistent. There is an end, and the end is a nothing. History, by definition, then, is linear, and it's coming to an end, a telos. And Paul reminds us that us, us being in the last days, there was a middle and a beginning. That's, what, that's what's implied. We don't exist independently of the rest of history. This is why like things like the New York Times 1619 project is pure absurdity. It's been gaining traction in some circles, and it purports that the U.S. got started because of racism and slavery and it foregoes the basic question that anyone would ask. What happened before 1619? Was there racism then? The answer is yes. Was there slavery then? The answer is also yes. In fact, all over the world. It doesn't make it right, but it doesn't mean it started from there. The U.S. didn't come to life in a bubble or a vacuum. Our problems didn't start in 1619, and it didn't start In the Americas, the New York Times needs to go further back if they dare. Native Americans also migrated from somewhere else. Fossil records prove this. There was a migration pattern from the northwest beyond Alaska, and many people believe from Asia. It's plain and obvious, I know. People don't just sprout up from the land like plants. They all came from somewhere. The point is this. You can track history by going backwards from looking at what has already transpired. By Paul, using the word telos is showing that all of history is pointing to the finality of this age. This current age is the telos of the aeon. And by recognizing this, we ought to be able to decipher our purpose and meaning. If Joe caught the ball, then you can can track the trajectory of where it came from. And that's what the scriptures are showing us. Who threw the ball? Why did he throw it? What's the reason he gave for throwing the ball? That's why we are to be a witnessing community. We witness to those that are around us when we follow God's commands, when we follow Christ and His commands. But when we start to think, eh, let's stop being so hard on ourselves, that's when we stop leaning on God's Word and His Holy Spirit for strength. That's when we are in the biggest danger. That's what we've seen in the last 11 verses of this chapter. That's why in verse 12 it says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Here we are reminded again that it's pride that always precedes the fall. This is why we are in subjection to the Scriptures We don't determine what is truth because our heart tells us or it feels good. There is literally no worthy discipline that follows this kind of pattern. How have we become convinced then that that could ever be an option? Just because it feels good, it must be right. There is no worthy discipline that follows that pattern. The lifting up of the self directly contradicts God's command to humble ourselves instead. In 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, at the proper time, He may exalt you. Our attitude when the people of God encounter Scripture should be that as God tells us. As we go into the last verse, and this is where I want to spend the most time, there is this um, word temptation. It starts with no temptation. Now to finish up this section, and this is a, a very uh, packed verse. To finish up this section, Paul talks about temptation, which is from the word peirazo or peirazmas, And it's sometimes translated as temptation, and sometimes it's translated as test or trial. It can be confusing. And that's why I want to go a little bit into it. Hebrews 11.17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. The word tested is Peirazo." So it wouldn't make sense then to translate that, By faith Abraham, when he was tempted, offered up Isaac. So that's why it's translated tested, but it's the same word as the word temptation that we see this morning, it's peirazo. How can you be tempted in the faith? That doesn't make any sense because who tested Abraham? God did. But also the same word is used in James 1:13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. The word tempt here is the same word, peyrazo. So which is it? Is it tempt or is it test? Well, the answer is it's both. Peyrazo can either be a test or a temptation. It depends on the context. The word itself means what it means. It's a test or trial. And if it's a negative word, it's given that meaning because of context. Because God does test us, but it is ultimately for our good. 1 Peter 1 7 says, In this, rejoice now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, perazo, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's for our good, Pey Razo. Tests aren't easy. Otherwise, they wouldn't be tests. God tests us so that we would come out stronger, but He doesn't tempt us. God does not solicit evil. That is an impossibility. God designs tests so that we would come out righteous and approved. Even in this world, the more important the position, the harder the test or the exam. Whether it's the bar or the CPA exam or the CFA exam or whatever medical license that you need. These are difficult exams because it's a reflection on the heaviness of the occupation. I don't want someone operating on me if they can't even pass the exam. So why are we tempted then if God means only to test? And James goes on further to extrapolate on what he means when he says that God does not tempt. In verse 14 of chapter 1 it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The temptation to do evil is from a man's lust for evil. It's not from God. Temptation is when we are drawn away from God and enticed. But I think the natural response to this is, well, we can't help but be tempted sometimes, right? And the scriptures are teaching us that if we do fall into sin, we can't blame our circumstances. In fact, what is verse 3 getting at? God's promise is that you'll never get into something you can't get out of. That's this verse 13. So if you can't get out, it's not God's fault. What about Jesus, you may ask? Doesn't it say in the Bible that the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted, to be peirazod, right? And yes, the Holy Spirit drove him into the place of temptation. Jesus had to go through this test, but God did not entice Jesus to do evil. God never urges or wants us to sin because God cannot be tempted inwardly. He cannot be inclined to do evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone. So when we are tempted, we are drawn away because of our own desires. When we sin, we sin willfully. Sinful deeds come from sinful desires. Temptation is when we want to do something that we are not supposed to do. It's a manifestation of our own corruption. This goes in line with sin, like history, is not a standalone thing. Sin isn't a standalone event. It's not isolated from the rest of your life. And Jesus even taught that if you hate, what you're really doing is you're giving birth to murder. And if you lust, that's adultery. But God isn't there fanning the flames of our lust. But we, however, nurture them. We fan the flames ourselves. It may be easier to think of it this way. This is perhaps, for some of us, difficult to swallow, so I purposely uh, designed this illustration this way. Let's say uh, Josh, um, he's the finance deacon. There he is, Josh. I'm not going to throw you the invisible ball. I'm going to use you for something else. Josh, our finance deacon, sees a lot of cash, like a mess of cash, Uh, a bunch of Benjamins on the table over here, right? And um, he immediately picks it up, and then he takes it to me and says, I found this wad of cash. And I go, oh, that's okay, because I left it there. And he asks, why did you do that? And I respond, but to test you, of course. We've had finance deacons skimming off the top before, and this is a direct and upfront way I can find out if you would do the same. Josh would probably go through a range of thoughts, right? You would probably go through a range of thoughts. One of them being glad that he didn't steal the money because he'd be in jail now. But depending on the state of Josh's heart, that test could turn into a temptation. What if the first thought that he had was, what the, what's this huge cash of, like wad of cash doing here? Well, I am a little behind in this month's rent must be a gift from God. (laughs) I could use a little something-something, and he would skim off that top. Then he would be tempted. Not because I did anything, but because of his inward desires. He could also think, how dare he test my integrity? Doesn't he know who I am? And thereby not trusting my intentions for him and be offended, and be tempted to resent me. All of these things, what I'm trying to say, is drawn out from the inward self. But when God brings you to a test, it's so that we can be stretched, and that we can add some muscle. It's true for the physical body, and it's also true for the spirit. COVID is a test. When we are tempted to resent others, Lose focus on our spiritual disciplines, not pray, not read the word, start blaming our circumstances. It's what precisely what the Bible is warning against. You will then complain, blame, gripe, and grumble. What about Matthew 6, though, when we are taught to pray and lead us not into temptation? The word for temptation there is the same word, razo. So if we're asking God not to lead us into temptation, doesn't that then imply that if we don't pray that, that he will lead us into temptation? How are we to understand razo there? Hmm? <laughs> and is temptation the right translation? Yes, temptation is the right translation. And to better understand the perazo there, we should finish the sentence because it doesn't end there. It ends with, but deliver us from the evil one. The prayer is God is asking God not to make a test into the opportunity for the devil to wipe me out. Deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Don't make this test into a temptation where the devil would wipe me out, but deliver us. And that is essentially the meaning of verse 13 here. God will not test you beyond what you can handle. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No temptation that you fall for. Remember, this is a statement that's meant for encouragement. No temptation that you fall for is something that has been foreign to humans. It's not something new. The temptations that the Corinthians were going through, they may have been tough, and maybe some of them thought, Wow, this is really hard. The temptations that I'm going through is really hard. Maybe we're that special. Maybe even the temptations are supernatural. I'm trying, Lord, but these temptations are just out of this world. Paul is saying that's not true. The temptations that we face are not superhuman. We cannot say the devil made me do it you will never have a testing or a temptation in your life that is anything other than human or common to man this means that we are brought then to a level playing field so to speak this is why in james chapter 5 verse 16 it says to confess our sins to one another because we are essentially in the same boat There's nothing that any one of you here can confess to me that will shock me as if you've done something that no one has ever done before. If you say, oh man, Huge, I can't tell you what I'm going through. This sin is just too crazy. Oh, did you discover a new one? It's not true. And this is why... The scriptures lead us to the things that we do here. And that's why we're starting smaller groups this week. This is why we do have groups of accountability in this church. i encourage you to join these groups because this is what the Bible says. Otherwise, our temptations may be too much for us to bear. And aren't they really, if you stand alone, aren't they so heavy, so crushing, That's why the Bible tells us we are to bear with one another's burdens because we are all going through the same temptations. And when we go through it together, Paul gives us this rock-solid truth. God is faithful. God is faithful. There is human temptation, but the help we receive, is divine. The help we receive is superhuman. The temptation isn't superhuman. The temptation is human. But the help we receive is superhuman. It is divine. God is faithful. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Temptation is inevitable because we are human, but we can handle it because we have God. This is why this particular transition is so great. God is faithful. That means He is the divine one that keeps His promise. This is all over the Bible. Let me just read you a few, but it's all over the Bible. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God, who keeps His covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, to a thousand generations. Second Timothy chapter two thirteen. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Psalm thirty three four. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. Psalm ninety one four. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And this is the greatest encouragement we can receive, isn't it? When we are going through a difficult trial, We ought to remind each other that God is faithful. There is this teaching now that when someone is mourning or going through a difficult trial, that saying something like, God won't give you something that you can't handle, is like the worst thing to say. Or, in the very least, it's insensitive. I get that saying that line as a platitude without regard or care for the person is something that can happen. It's a lazy way to address someone without any regard for their pain. But if you think about it, if you really think about it, the greatest reminder that we will be seen through this trial is because of God's faithfulness is an incredible encouragement. If you really love a brother or sister and they are going through a particularly hard and difficult time, you should pray that they see and recognize God's faithfulness. It's all over the Bible to encourage his people. COVID is a test, but God has been faithful to CGS in so many ways. You know, in the beginning, we were concerned, like, how are we going to keep our doors open if no one comes? How are we going to get offerings and things like that? Our offerings in 2020, and if you remember, if you remember here, we went over this, but our offerings in 2020 exceeded our budget. Every time we make a budget, it, it's more than our previous offerings. That's very aggressive, right? Right? So if you have like a certain amount of offering and then you set the next year's budget, you probably want to set it the same. But the elders and I, we decided to, in faith to increase that budget by like 10% or something, which is an enormous amount. Our offerings in 2020 exceeded that amount. God is incredibly faithful to us. Our staff grew. Our members grew. COVID is a test, but we can see that God remains Faithful. It's when we don't believe in his faithfulness. It's when we stay in the dark, continue to stumble into temptation after temptation, sin after sin. That's when we're in trouble. But the faithful God will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is a definite article before the word way of escape. It's one word, way of escape, right? There's a definite article. That's why it's not a way of escape. It's the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's not God will provide a way, He will provide the way. There is a sure way out, and God will provide it. The way of escape has connotations then of going through. And enduring, as it says in the end of the verse. So I want to end with three practical examples of how we can endure. What the Bible says that we can do to endure. Number one is pray. When we have temptations in front of us, Jesus is the one that warns his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak when we're faced with a trial immediately our first response and reaction should be to pray the first thing that we do should be to pray and when you don't pray you have to at least admit then you don't want to win you want to give in to this temptation isn't that right isn't that the case for us when we're faced with temptations and you don't want to pray, isn't it because you want to give in to this temptation? At least admit that then. So the victory that is promised us is to pray the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And God will provide the way for us. And number two, it's to trust. Trust that God sent that trial to you because you are a child of God. God sent that trial to you, not to destroy you, but to strengthen you. God is perfecting you. And one way He does that is to give us trials. Trust that He has a purpose for you, and as He guides you out, you will be stronger. And number three, keep your eyes on Christ. I doubt there is anyone who has endured more trials for as long as he has endured them than Jesus Christ. No one had it worse than Jesus did. All the more so because he absolutely did not deserve the things that that were done to him. Sinless, he came to a sinful world. And he was subject to all manners of evil. But through it all, he did not sin. He was innocent. He was blem- blemishlessness, blemishness-less, Excuse me. And he led a perfect life. And he made the way for us. When we keep our eyes on Christ, we can go all the way. When we keep our eyes on Christ, we can go all the way. I was telling the staff this on Tuesday, but on monday i decided uh to watch hbo max they had this they had um the hobbit trilogy so i thought i might watch it again it's only like each one is only like three hours so I was like fine i'll just watch it on my break um and there's this one part that really stood out and you know these uh these dwarves are trying to retake their mountain it's the lonely mountain they're trying to take the mountain back which was their home and this dragon overtook it. I think his name is Benedict Cumberbatch or something. But this dragon overtook it. And so they're making their way. And it's really difficult. The journey is so hard, right? And they are, like, tossed. They are put in jail. They're tossed into, like, the river going down barrels. And there's all these things. It's a tiny bit different from the book, but I thought it was so well written too. But... And all these things are happening. And finally, when they're going to this lake town... Um, they need to bring out even more money to pay this person the bar. They need to pay him more money. And they're like, all right, everybody take out your pocketbooks. It's going to cost you a little bit more coin. And they start griping. They start complaining. It's like, again, no more, not a penny more. I'm not going to give one penny more. But if you understand this heart, I think it's because you also understand that It's not when you lose big that you're, like, very frustrated. It's like when you lose little by little by little, that's when you get really, really frustrated. And I'm sure no one here has gambled before, but I've heard from other sources that the worst way to lose money gambling is to lose, like, $5 at a time for hours, right? It's not like $5,000 in one shot. And you just keep on thinking you're losing more, a little bit more, and just got frustrated to the point where this uh, dwarf just shouted out, "No more! I'm not going to give a penny more." But in the midst of their gripes, in the midst of their complaining, in the lake as they're traveling across it, the mist parts, and it's it's more beautifully written in the book. But the mist parts, and they're able to see their destination, the lonely mountain, and there's silence on the boat. And everybody just stands up and they look at what they are fighting for. And then after they see it, they're like, take all my money. Take it. It's fine. Just take what what I have. I just want to get there. Take it all. Here it is. That's what I mean by keep your eyes on Christ. When we continue to lose sight, maybe it's time for us to turn our eyes on Christ." And he is the beautiful one that we are sailing to together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible encouragement that we have received in your word. The world will try to entice, frustrate, tempt, have us gripe, complain, bicker. But Lord, what we want to do now is to remember your faithfulness over our lives. We may not understand everything, but we want to trust that you are leading us closer and closer to you as we subject ourselves to your word and have your Holy Spirit transform our hearts. Help us to see the true beauty of Christ in our lives and help us to follow with everything that we have. Let's take this time to pray and as reflect on what the Word of God has shown us. Let's reflect in prayer, in confession, where we have complained, where we did follow the ideologies of the world, where we did compromise. But let's pray and reflect and ask God for His strength, that we can lean on Him, especially when things get tough, so that we can end up with Him. Let's pray.